Welcome all to this keynote at the Battle of Ideas 2017. Diversity, does it matter? Even having a session entitled that feels a bit risque. I'm Claire Fox, the director of the Institute of Ideas. I was very keen to organise this discussion because everywhere I go, it's just assumed that diversity per se is a good thing and every organisation I work with has very intricate diversity policies. And so I just wanted to interrogate it, take a step back and uh, dig a bit deeper, which is one of the things that we're trying to do at this year's festival. The long blurb of this session actually starts with the fury around the Google engineer, James Daymore, who challenged Google's diversity policies, which he called arbitrary social engineering of tech just to make it appealing to equal portions of men and women was dubious. Regardless of what one thought about James Daymore, the fact that that became an international headline, that Google memo, and the fact that Google then went on to uh, ensure that Daymore didn't work for them anymore, one way or another, would indicate that although we talk about diversity a lot, diversity of opinion is much less of a, a popular fashion uh, today. But I, I think, it, nonetheless, we've seen any number of uh, displays or discussions recently about diversity or the lack of it. We've had the government's own race audit seemingly revealing huge disparities in the way people are treated uh, due to their ethnicity. Only uh, last week we've had David Lammy's report expose on the lack of diversity at universities. Moral Maze that I did for BBC Radio 4 was on that very topic during the week. There's a huge lot to investigate and interrogate here to see whether, in fact, there is a real problem of discrimination, lack of diversity in the workplace, what we mean by the concept of diversity, whether it's become something of a counting game of, of, of different uh, ethnicities or genders, uh, whether it's tokenism, why it's important, or, or whether it is important, and so on. So in order to discuss that, I've, of course, got a diverse panel. Now, you might have noticed <laughs> that there's no men on the panel. So the one thing about the Institute of Ideas is we don't do tokenism. So when I realised there wasn't a man on the panel, it did make me think, oh, maybe I should get a man on the panel, but I didn't want to patronise them. So uh, we've no token men allowed. <laughs> but we've got diversity in, in, in the intellectual sense, which is, of course, much more interesting. And so I'm delighted to have the people I've got. Just, just one thing I wanted to start with was a woman called Fan, Fanny Malinin, uh, from an Occupy London activist, made a point. She said, when, when asked to speak on a panel... She's often asked to speak on panels, and, and, and they always say it would be good to have a female voice. And she said that even though she's a feminist, she always reacts against that and thinks, I am my own voice, and I feel that reducing me to a single aspect is far from empowering or equalising. And I think that, in a way, that kind of sums it up, because she's actually an equal equality campaigner and a, and a social justice campaigner, but she herself kind of has that bristle slightly at the idea that she's invited to be part of, uh, to, to indicate that panel's diverse. So I think you can see that there are tensions in relation to this. Let me introduce the panel in the order in which they'll speak. Sitting next to me and who will be speaking first is Amali de Alwis, who is the Chief Executive of Code First Girls, which is an award-winning social enterprise which works with companies and women directly to increase the proportion of women in tech and, ent and entrepreneurship. Amali also was previously a consultant at PwC. We met when PwC were uh, one of the partners of the festival, and although that partnership didn't continue, I think the, the friendship with Amali and kind of mutual respect, although we disagree on lots of things, has very much continued. And I think that 
Code First Girls actually is one of the, is, is a diversity project that I really like and admire. I think it does some really fantastic work. But I know that Amali and I can spar and argue and still go out for a drink afterwards. So that's why it's great to have you here. She was also seconded to the World Economic Forum. She's chair of the BIMA Diversity Panel. Give her a warm welcome, please. Next up, we'll be hearing from Josie Appleton. Josie is the director of the Civil Liberties Group, the Manifesto Club. She's the author of Officious, The Rise of the Busy Body State. She blogs at Notes on Freedom, which I love, and is an indispensable read for anyone who's looking for a thoughtful take on the world. Her, her essay or her blog on Catalonia is second to none, absolutely brilliant, just that she wrote the other week. But she always makes me think she's an advisor to the Institute of Ideas Academy, universities it should be, where we go away for a few days. And she's the Battle of Ideas regular speaker. I'm always interested in her opinions. Give her a warm welcome, please. Drader Say Mitchell, it's her first time here at the Battle of Ideas and I'm really chuffed to have her here because I've been a great admirer and follower of hers from afar on the telly and on the radio and in her writing. She's an author, journalist, broadcaster and campaigner. She's the winner of the CWA's John Creasy Dagger for her debut novel, uh, Running Hot, and her latest novel is Blood Daughter. She's a trustee of the National Youth Arts Trust, an ambassador for the Reading Agency, patron of the SI Leeds Literary Prize. And I just think that every time, again, I hear her speak, she, she, she doesn't follow anybody's convention. That's the thing I'd say about her. She thinks for herself, why wouldn't you want someone like that at the Battle of Ideas? So give her a warm welcome, please. Last but not least, delighted to have over from the United States, Kathy Young. Kathy's spoken at the festival before. This time she's over and we've got her speaking five times, so she's absolutely working for it. The reason why we've got her speaking five times is because she's a prolific and hugely important journalist and commentator in the States. And she writes on such interesting issues that, you know, there were so many panels that I just thought, oh, Kathy would be brilliant on that. So, and, and this was one of the, those issues, in fact. And she wrote about the Daymore controversy and the whole issue around diversity. She's a weekly columnist for Newsday. She writes for Slate, Washington Post, Reason, New York Times, everyone. She's the author of Ceasefire, Why Women and Men Must Join Forces to Achieve True Equality, which she wrote some time ago and I think was ahead of its time. She's a media fellow um, at the Cato Institute. And I think it's important to have an American perspective on this as much as anything, because a lot of the issues around diversity are being discussed in a particular way in America that has an impact, I think, over in Europe. So can we give Kathy a warm welcome? Okay, let's start. Amali, your thoughts, please. Thank you so much, Claire, and lovely to be here, everyone. Does diversity matter? For me, it really comes down to what kind of world do we want to live in? Now, speaking personally, I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in uh, a god. I don't believe that there should be a predefined plan for what we do as human beings. I also believe that in many ways we've not only outgrown, but pretty much decimated any natural order we have with other species around us. So we can fly, we can cross oceans, we've built the planet, we've destroyed the planet, uh, we've gone to the moon, um, and we've got, I, I guess we've created ourselves into our own gods, um, and we have greater control over our own destinies and futures than any other species uh, on this planet. So the question then becomes, what do we do with that power? 
Now, my personal values include an importance placed on helping to create a world with a bit more fairness. Now, that's very much a product of my background, my upgrading, my experiences. Um, and there are those who will argue that natural order isn't fair. You know, you have predators, you have prey, uh, you have survival of the fittest, and so on and so forth. But my argument would be, why in a world where we have outstripped natural order in so many other ways, would we want to keep ourselves tied to the idea of a predestined social hierarchy? Now, this doesn't mean that we should all give up personal ambition um, and sit around campfires singing Kumbaya, um, but I would like to see a world where people who wish to do something, to be something, and where their social backgrounds mean that they are less likely to do so um, naturally before, still have an opportunity to access and thrive in those environments. And where we do have positions of power, and we're not talking just economic, but political, intellectual, the power to change social infrastructure, that we allow those people who are impacted by those different powers to actually have a greater voice in directing that power. Now, when we think about how to create a fairer world, this is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. In my experience, whilst fairness is sometimes a zero-sum game, it's often a little bit more subtle than that. It's a game where not only do, um, does what winning looks like changes from day to day, but even the number of pieces change, the players change. But one thing that doesn't change is that those who have more power and those who have greater representation and more of a voice are those who can define the game and how it changes. And that, for me, is where diversity comes in. We do live in a different one to the one that we had a thousand years ago. Borders change, our transport technologies have allowed us to move around the world more easily. And we're not only able to now see better what other people in the world are doing, we have much more influence and impact to actually change our own lives if we wish to do so as well. Now, the challenge is obviously when one individual's desire for change butts up against another person's desire not to change especially when that change involves giving up some sort of advantage or just having more people who are sharing that same advantage. And this is because we're, we are moving slightly beyond our own social engineering here. We protect what resources we have because otherwise we used to have our families go hungry. We protect power and position because those instincts worked for us to protect our basic needs in life. Now, I can understand uh, why those protections would be important in a world where, you know, whether it's a choice between my family eating or your family eating. But it becomes a little bit more complicated if you're talking about your right to eat versus my right to own a second Lamborghini. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with Lamborghinis. I like Lamborghinis. Um, but, you know, whilst it's a very oversimplified example, I can understand why someone in that position might feel that things were unfair and want things to be different. And that point of change doesn't come easily. There is an aspect of critical mass which plays a part here. Change happens when you have enough people pulling in the same direction for long enough. And wanting to achieve a fairer world and how to achieve that, obviously, are two different things. And I think one of the challenges is that the rules of cause and effect don't always apply here. We can, if we, for example, talk about institutional bias, have situations where you do have institutional bias, but you also have social factors which play a part in that. We can have bias against women from different ethnic backgrounds while still having biases against white working-class men. Now, these issues aren't mutually exclusive, and addressing one inequality doesn't mean that you have to do so at the expense of another. So does diversity matter? It does to me. And in a practical sense, diversity and supporting diversity for means that people 
I believe, uh, should have a better pop at better incomes, more of a voice in how the world continues to evolve. And when we talk about that, um, we're not talking just political power, but we're also talking social power, as well as power to change infrastructure. Now, I work in the tech sector, and um, I'm, I'm fascinated by how technology can play a role in impacting um, society. And when we think about what's happened in the last 25, 30 years, I think it's pretty extraordinary how much it's not just become a tool for us to use, but it's also become very much the foundation um, of how we are building our society. And actually, technology has a huge role to play in social engineering. Now, whilst technology itself isn't intrinsically biased, we can build bias into those technologies. And we build bias into technologies because we actually generally start by building things which relate to us. I build something which makes my life easier or makes the lives of people that I know easier. It's much harder and it's much more abstract for me to build something for people who I don't know and who I don't understand their needs or what their challenges are. And we've seen the impact of this creeping into our technology already. So voice recognition software that had trouble recognizing women's voices because it was calibrated to lower registers of male voices. Or if we talk about algorithms which are written to identify visions of beauty, which don't take into account different ethnic visions of beauty and different ideals of beauty that way. And so as tech moves from being these tools to being these things which are foundations of how we build our society, it then has a cascade effect on how we're going to continue to build and continue to grow our society. So this is why, even if we put aside for one time the idea of should we be allowing people to be working, encouraging different people to be working in one of the fastest growing industries, um, in the most lucrative and in the most um, sort of you know, widespread industries that is impacting our lives today. If we are thinking about building foundations for society, I would say it's better to start with building a fairer foundation and then try and address the challenges as you go along and adjust those to how society changes rather than building in inequality and bias from the start. Okay, okay brilliant start, Amali. Uh, very thought-provoking. Lots to pick up there uh, later in the discussion. Um, Josie. Yeah, in the feudal period, uh, the way in which you related to people was determined by the category of person you were. So as a certain kind of knight, you would have certain rights and obligations to other people. You'd have to guard the castle or go and campaign for them. And then in the 18th century, there was a revolution with the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment Salon, which was the idea that it was rude to ask who someone was and where they were from. It was rude to ask about their family. And you should treat them as an individual, consider their arguments, just as their arguments. And that people were about where they made themselves, not where they come from. And that, I think, the ideal of free and easy dealings and dealing with people as individuals according to what they've done, what they say, and not, not where, where they are. It's a very important ideal. I think we have a kind of strange refutalization going on at the moment. I think, again, it's become, it's become rude not to ask um, what's your pronoun, what's your sexuality, what's your um, ethnic background. And I think that really there's a kind of, with diversity policies, it's insensitive to kind of assume you know someone or just to deal with them in a kind of even-handed way. I think that to be unconscious about where someone comes from is called bias. You know, to be, it's called unconscious bias and you need unconscious bias training. So I think that what's being targeted in many ways is not actually discrimination, so not actually any, someone's conscious racist views, nor the structural inequalities which do exist between groups of ethnicity and that kind of thing. What's being targeted is our free and easy dealings with one another. The idea that you relate individually, freely, um, and just have the conversation that you think, not what category of person is this person, but you think, 
Um, how can we build the West website? How can we make music together? How can we get on with the job that we're doing together? So it's a kind of distraction from the job in hand and the free and easy relation. Um, and so the, the world of diversity policies is the monitored, uh, policed terrain where you have to be questioning yourself and always asking, um, why am I doing this? Why am I thinking what I'm thinking? It's a kind of hyper-conscious, surveillance-controlled world and not the world of freedom. You know, it's very much turned against the world of freedom. Um, and so it's a kind of new bureaucratization um, of relations whereby people deal with categories and not directly face-to-face. -face. This very much destructures not only organizations but also states' relationships to the public. So I'm answering a lot of council consultations at the moment um, about PSPOs, which are council's bans on things in public spaces. And so they're proposing to ban homeless people, rough sleeping, all that sort of thing. So you're filling in this questionnaire and you're struggling to find somewhere where to say, uh, I disagree with this measure. You know, because it asks you, have you seen the homeless person? Are you affected? They ask all these questions. They don't ask you, do you disagree with this measure? But then you get to the end and there's a long list of questions about your sexuality, your gender, um, your ethnicity, your religion, like majority of the questionnaire. And you have, here you have boxes where you can really express yourself and say exactly what grade of gender you feel yourself to be. But the state, in a way, is relating to people in their most passive aspect, so not in terms of their opinions or even their interest groups. So actually, it would be quite interesting to ask people if you're a homeless person when you're filling in this petition. They don't ask that question. They ask about your, your gender, your sexuality, um, things that are essentially irrelevant. So it's dealing with people in their passive aspect, not in their active aspect. The way that the council says we're representative is not to say we express your will, we express your opinion, or we express certain interest groups. It is to say almost like a bureaucratic correctness that we've got the correct number of people responding to our consultation. Well, the BBC, to say, to be representative, then they have to have 7% of LGBT, um, you know, exactly, they have to get the right numbers. So it becomes an exercise in, in bureaucratic correctness, not an exercise in representing an audience or actually relating to people's kind of concerns. You know, again, the, the BBC, the fact that they would have to ask people at their interviews if, if they're gay, you know, and that becomes then uh, a factor in when they, whether they hire them or not, you know, which is quite a, quite a kind of um, step that that's being taken. It becomes rude not to ask, rather than the nice mind deal of being rude to ask. But I think it's not just the state and organisations. I think that this kind of relating through categories is very much something that happens spontaneously in people's personal lives and in, and in spheres and universities and public debate. And people will often say, you know, as an ex, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a gay woman of colour or as this or that or that. I think this because of who I am, um, or you can't say that because you're a Y. Um, you look at people's Twitter descriptions, often it's a kind of list of the various categories they, they belong to. You can't think, well, where, where do you live? Um, are you conservative or liberal? You know, it'd be nice to know that too, as, as, as well as the fact that you're, you know, pan, he, she, or I don't know what, you know, literally it's a kind of list and they've gone through all the categories and they've picked the ones that they correspond, and that, and that becomes who they are. Um, so I think people relate through the category and not directly face-to-face, -face, but also it becomes, who the, it becomes the way they relate to themselves as well and the way they think about themselves, which is in many ways um, thinking through a tick box, thinking about yourself through a tick box and not, um, not actually as your inner life and someone with aspirations and, and things that, that, that are really actually unique to you as an individual. So I think there's, there's something very undiverse about diversity, very, something very standardized, diversity policies and, and, and structures, very standardized, that aren't actually about genuine cultural um, experience or individual qualities, but are about some kind of formulaic 
standard to which you subscribe and through which um, you relate. So I think this is a kind of refeudalization, but it's obviously not um, feudalization proper in the sense that a lot of these categories are quite arbitrary and I mean, some relate to past inequalities. Um, some are just invented. You know, you kind of look through a list of gender categories on Facebook and I, you know, no one knows what a lot of these things mean. And, you know, I think that there is a kind of um, fantasy quality to it. Um, and it's not really about these being real divisions in social life. It's almost just they, what they represent is a turn away from that enlightenment ideal of free and easy dealings. And it's a kind of bureaucratization or an ossification, both of our own identities and also of our relations um, to others. It's a kind of disavowal of freedom. So I think, for me, I, I would be a I mean, lot, lot more of the, of the Enlightenment sat on a lot less of the, of the medieval night when we're approaching this question. Okay. Uh, I, I have to say that those... I, I, I've become so belligerent with forms now, but I, I really do want to just write, mind your own business um, all, <laughs> all over the place. But they are the bulk of the form. That is exactly... No matter what you're doing, they want to know everything about you. But that side of it, as you say, nobody asks your opinions. So that's fascinating. Anyway, Rita. Let me start by saying uh, I kind of had one of these light bulb moments uh, um, a couple of years ago. I got asked to sit on a panel of what I knew were black crime writers. And the panel was called Alternative Voices. And I stepped back and I thought, hang on, is that what I am, an alternative? No one had asked me, so I think when Claire asked me to um, be one of the contributors to this debate, lots of questions came to my mind. And one of the first questions that came is, before you decide, does diversity matter? You have to ask, who decides what diversity actually is? So who are the people who decide? You know, who is it decides what is legitimate and which isn't? Who decides what the arguments are and which aren't? You know, the people very often who actually decide what diversity is very often aren't the communities where we actually want to, to, to get at. I've got two examples of this. I review crime fiction and, and, and crime films, and I don't know if everyone remembers Dear White People, the film Dear White People, which then became a, a Netflix series. And I was shocked to find out when I went to review this film that no one would pick this film up in Britain for distribution. The only people who came forward, thank God, were the new black film collective. So it's really interesting because in the arts we have, you know, film people, they've all got their um, diversity policies. But they were actually saying, in terms of them, that wasn't important enough for them. For me, that was a really, really important film. And if it wasn't for the black film collective, <coughs> who would have actually got to see that film. So there's a real power thing going on. I used to, I started out as a teacher and I worked my way up and I worked in lots of local authorities and I used to do lots of work about ethnic minority achievement, the achievement of black, working class pupils, pupils from refugee communities in schools in, um, in London. And you know, after a while it occurred to me very often when I would join a team, I would very often, in terms of a being an education consultant, I would very often be the only black minority ethnic consultant within this team. And here you are making decisions about black pupils in, 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 in schools. And I even knew within our team, even though we would make a policy, it still has to go further up the chain. And you know the people further up the chain are going very often to be white, middle class males very often, very few 
women. So I think the big question that we need to ask ourselves is who decides what diversity is? Think about some of the key moments in terms of um, race relations and the changing in race relation policies in this country. Think about the, the unrest that you had in Brixton in, in, in the 80s. Who decided what should be the recommendations and changes? Lord Scarman is not black. The Macpherson inquiry into the appalling death of Stephen Lawrence, who decided? Macpherson, not a black person. And at least I can say in 2017, we've got David Lammy out there, along with the government doing the, you know, the disparity report. At least he's at the forefront. So we have to ask ourselves, when platforms are created, and we talk about diversity, who are the people who really have the voice? Who are the key people who are really making a decision? Because I bet you this much, it's not the people who come from those communities. The other thing that it really got me thinking about when somebody called me an alternative, you know, how much, on the everyday level, people out there, everyday lives, in terms of diversity, does it really matter to them? You know, I don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and go, oh my God, I'm black. It's the most important thing for me to remember today. I must carry it around with me. I must stop every 10 minutes and think, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black. I don't wake up in the middle of the night and think about, my God, was Cleopatra black or was she really green? You know, it's this type of thing. So I think very often there seems sometimes to be a bit of a disconnect between here we are on this panel, we've got our pundits, I'm a pundit, do lots of broadcasting, academic. I think sometimes there's a big disconnect between that world that's thinking and thinking and thinking about it and actually people's everyday lives. What people want is they don't want to be thinking that they're a member of a diversity. What happens in our society is they're pushed to think. I'll give an example of this. I don't really like wearing suits, as I'm sure you notice. And um, when I worked in one particular local authority, and this was a really white on local authority, I was going on to one of their really right on schools. I actually had a suit on because I wanted to impress the head teacher and I was meeting them for the first time. I walked into this school and a member of the teaching staff, and I knew from later on because I did training with them, walked up to me and actually said, she didn't ask, you know, who would I come to meet? She said, oh, are you looking for the kitchen? And it's those kind of instances that people have time and time again that make you step back and think, oh my God, I'm a bit different, I'm a bit diverse. You know, with me and my brother, when I was seven years old, me and my brother left primary school, East End of London, I grew up on an estate, we were happy, and i never forget, this car came along, there were two men in it, two white guys in it, they asked us for directions, and as we asked for directions, what we didn't realise was happening was one of the guys was shaking up a can, and he let it open, and he sprayed it all over us, and they racially abused us as they, um, as they left. It's moments like that when you realise, ah, I'm living in a world where things might be different for me. So I think there's a difference between saying people want to keep saying that they're diverse and being told that they're diverse all the time. The last thing I wanted to say, and I haven't got enough time, or Clara tell me off, is the one thing we're not keep thinking about, and actually it troubles me quite a lot. When we keep talking about diversity, we talk about um, people's sexuality, gender identity, um, ethnicity, um, gender in terms of men and women. In Britain, we do not talk about class. We keep pushing class to the side. And I don't think, it doesn't matter how many diversity policies we have, 
how right on we are if we're not going to contextualise that in a class society and do something about that imbalance in terms of class, we're always going to be playing um, catch-up. We're always going to be playing catch-up. So I'm all for diversity. Yes, it does matter. But you know what? I think we've got some real big issues to unpick, and one of them is definitely class. Okay, great. Uh, so that was great. A lot of challenges there. A lot of things to come back on. Certainly a lot of things I want to talk to you uh, about uh, in the discussion. So uh, we'll come back after we've heard from Cathy. Thank you very much for the warm welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, so I want to start with um, a news story that was uh, out there uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, there was a headline that said, uh, Apple Diversity Vice President Apologizes for Controversial Statement. And this was uh, a story about the new Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion at the Apple Corporation, uh, who you know, incurred controversy uh, by stating that you could have a group of uh, 12 uh, blonde, blue-eyed, white males and still have it be a diverse group if there was a diversity of life experience and perspective. And uh, she had also said, um, quote, diversity is the human experience. I get a little bit frustrated uh, when the term diversity is tagged solely to people of color or women or LGBT. And there was a huge negative reaction to this. Uh, she had to apologize and to clarify that uh, Apple is still committed to the kind of more traditional conception of diversity and inclusion. And the irony, by the way, is that the, the, the person who got into this controversy by making the statement is herself a black woman. So I thought that was a kind of ironic, uh, ironic detail there. And uh, the, the terms in which this news story was discussed, I think, is also kind of interesting. It was pointed out, for instance, that Apple has a diversity problem uh, because only 28% of its management staff is female and only 23% of its engineers. Uh, and it was also said that 55% of the uh, engineering staff at Apple is white. Now, actually, that is below, I believe, the actual uh, proportion of uh, white people in the American population. So that was, uh, that was also kind of ironic. Um, and uh, I think th th this whole uh, the, the story raises some really interesting questions about uh, the ways in which diversity is understood. And uh, by the way, one um, other thing uh, that was uh, kind of amusing, uh, Claire mentioned uh, James Damore, the Google engineer who was fired uh, after a, a memo leaked out that he had uh, written internally in which he argued that the underrepresentation of women uh, at Google should not necessarily be seen as uh, kind of ipso facto evidence of discrimination, and that um, it was partly related to the uh, difference between men and women. Not necessarily, he didn't, by the way, say that women cannot do engineering. That was. Uh, something that was misreported. His main point was that there's a difference between men and women in the level of interest 
uh, in uh, technological uh, professions, which again doesn't mean that he said women do not go into these professions, just that there are fewer women. Uh, and there was, uh, in response to this controversy over the uh, statement by the Apple vice president, one commentator on Twitter said, well, one thing that is really terrible uh, by, about the statement that she made is, is that when you start talking about diversity of opinion, people like James Damore think that they actually represent diversity of opinion. Uh, well, and of course, you could argue that, you know, in fact, in, in a sense, they do. <laughs> because, you know, that is an opinion that got him fired from Apple and the, uh, from Google, and that clearly was not considered acceptable. Uh, and that, by the way, was quite severely distorted in a lot of the reporting. Uh, now, I think there are a lot of questions that, uh, that arise when we look at these issues. Uh, now, I would, I would actually agree that if you have, for instance, a conference that, where the speaker's uh, roster consists solely of you know, blue, white, blonde, white males, I think that, that it sort of does amount to bad optics, if nothing else, you know, in today's world. I think it does raise a question about you know, are you actually casting a wide net in looking for speakers? You know, are you looking at all the different possibilities? Uh, you know, is there a kind of narrowness of our uh, perspective um, in a way? Uh, so, you know, I really do try to avoid absolutist statements like, you know, well, the only diversity that really matters is diversity of opinion. It doesn't matter if you have, you know, all white males. Uh, I mean, that's sort of an extreme position in a way. And I think it's equally uh, extreme and kind of equally misguided to say that the only diversity that matters is sort of demographic diversity. Because of course that you know, raises the uh, question of uh, you know, do you really have uh, people from different demographic groups who are all expressing really basically the same point of view, which I think is what often happens, for instance, in the academy today. Uh, also, you know, how many categories are we really looking at when we're talking about demographic diversity? I mean, are we just looking at race and gender? Are we looking at sexuality? You know, how many genders are there? Which is, of course, you know, something that we wouldn't have been talking about, you know, five years ago. But you know, today uh, this is obviously more than just men and women. Uh, I mean, do we talk about diversity of religion? You know, are people from conservative religions, which you know may not necessarily have you know progressive ideas about gender diversity? You know, should they be a part? of those diverse conversations. So I think in a way, some of these uh, different types of diversity may very well come into conflict with one another. Um, and you know, I, I think these are all things that we really should be looking at. And I, I do agree, by the way, that class is very much a dimension that very often gets overlooked in these discussions. Uh, so I think this is the type of dialogue uh, that, that we should be having, and I think this panel is, is really a great contribution to that, and this is, this is what we should be doing. Uh, and um, one other, one other, um, okay, one other uh, thing that I really very quickly want to bring up is that while, again, I, do, I, I don't think that demographic diversity is entirely unimportant, I think there are a lot of really simplistic claims that get made on behalf of that type of diversity. And real quick, one example, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a claim 
that, uh, you know, those help apps where, like Siri, where you ask, a, where you ask your smartphone a question and get an answer, that you know, the, the uh, information that they provide on questions like sexual assault is often really inadequate, often they don't even understand the question, and it was claimed that this is an example of what you get when you have a primarily male staff. Well, it turns out if you look at the source of that, uh, which was an article in a medical magazine, it turns out that the information they give on things like heart attacks is actually equally bad. So it really wasn't about gender, it was really the original article was about the fact that these apps tend to have very bad health information generally. So it actually didn't have anything to do with you know, male engineers being you know, uninterested in female-oriented questions. So I think we really have to be careful when, you, when we look at some of these claims about uh, you know, problems being related to lack of diversity. Uh, so it's often much more complicated than that. So that's, uh, that's it from me. Good. Thank Thanks, Cathy. I'd say I'm keen to get out of you. Just quick, quick sort of responses from you, because you might want to pick up on something that any, anyone else said. But, um, I, and, and for Cathy, she might not have picked up on this, but there was this, um, you mentioned David Lammy, but there was, when, when the race audit happened, for example, um, which actually was, you know, commissioned by uh, the Conservative Party, which is an indication that things have certainly changed. But anyway, there were a group of people who actually argued against some of the conclusions of that and said it was kind of using causation and correlation in a particular way to agenda. And actually, Manira Mertzer was one of the people who, who, who wrote that letter and she actually opened the festival this morning by coincidence. But what was interesting was a separate group of people from ethnic minorities, I mean, even I can't cope with the, just saying it just as, a, as though it's a token point, but when they actually objected to some of the things that David Lamed said in terms of the prison report or the race audit, they were kind of turned on as the wrong kind of ethnics. I mean, and that will often happen, right? And it kind of really kind of a distasteful kind of you're the wrong kind of woman is said to me very often. You know what I mean? Like, like well, what, 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 what women want? And I'll say, well, I don't want that. And they'll say, well, you don't count, right? I mean, so, it, you know, but no, well, the reason I'm saying that and I'm turning to, uh, to actually to, to Josie and, and Rita, um to say when you were sort of talking about getting trapped, because you were saying the point, you don't wake up and think of yourself as black every day, but people will make you feel black mm. when they're being racist. But sometimes I think that some of the points that Josie was making, you can also be overly made self-conscious about your demographic through these policies, because people only see you through the prism of that. When you can say, well, you know, just because I'm black doesn't mean I have the same views as every other black person, because there's a lumping together there. So, Josie, anything to say? Drita, anything to say? Talking about that particular article, that it, I had such strong visceral objection to that article that, you know, that we're talking about, and the person that we talked about, Manira, I really revere her work completely because I just felt it was just not evidence-based. No one's saying you can't say what you say, but you know what, if you say what you say, be prepared for people to come back at you. So I think that's the thing, is if you say something, it doesn't mean that other people shouldn't be allowed to say things back to you. You've got to be prepared. I've been in that situation where I've said things and people have said things um, back to me. And um, I was very upset when I read that article, very, very upset. Can I, because can I just clarify, you were upset when you read 
the letter from Manira and everyone, the, 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 and her article in the Spectator. The article yeah. in 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 the Spectator, because people have come so far, and it almost made it sound like people were exaggerating about some of their experiences. You know, I continually keep relaxing, thinking everything's all right, and then boom. So you know, there was I, I got invited to a, a very very interesting debate on Radio 4. I turned up, I'm not going to name the institution, I was told to turn up at the time, um, I was in my jeans, and I said, I'm here for such and such, and I was told at the reception, oh, we're not taking members of the audience yet. That was last year. This keeps happening to me, so the problem for me is when you get articles and opinion like I saw in The Spectator, which is fine to do it, I'm sorry, I'm going to come back at you with, hang on, these type of things do really happen to people. And can you stop diminishing people's experiences? Because we do not live in a fair and equal society. End all. Okay, well, I don't know if Manira's sorry, in. No, no, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I think Manira might be in the audience, so I will take her afterwards if she is. But anyway, whatever. Um, Josie, but, but, uh, any comments from you? Yeah, no, I very much agree with the importance of class. And I think, in a way, there's a failure of the sociological imagination going on here, whereby every inequality is reduced to an interpersonal question of discrimination. And that was actually one of the good points in the Google letter, where he said, you know, every difference is not the result of, 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 of interpersonal discrimination between people. There are lots of reasons why there, why there is inequality. And I think that it used to be the role of social policy to deal with those reasons, you know, to do with, to do with education, welfare, Men and women, actually, childcare provision, extremely important. This country actually has terrible childcare provision. So if people want to have a child, generally it's the woman who stays at home and takes career cuts, etc. Whereas content, on the continent is actually much better and it can have no, impl no implications whatever for your work. So I think those kind of uh, provision aspects which dealt with those structural inequalities are seen as much less important have been cut back largely. So in a way it's reduced the interpersonal um, and a targeting of that uh, which is a real loss of sociological Im imagination. So the, um, the report talked about inequalities, um, black people being less likely to get mortgages. And you think, well, that's not due to the discrimination of mortgage advisors. You know, it's because they have less money. And the reason they have less money is because of all the reasons we know to do with family breakdown and um, historically inequalities and lack of education and being so, you know, it, it's all those reasons. And it, it, there's kind of like blindness to sociological reality. So I think that in a way we're reducing everything to the, to the interpersonal and blaming unconscious or, or, or willful um, discrimination, whereas actually the, the issues such as they are really, you know, that are important, that do exist and need tackling, but need tackling in, in that kind of old concrete kind of welfare manner. Amali, do you want to come in? Yeah, I, I was yeah, just going to say... And, and then I'm going to go straight out, and then I'll start back with Kathleen later. Yeah, I agree and disagree with actually both of those points. So going to that point around, let's say, mortgages. Um, you can have mortgages decline because someone is biased against you. You can also have mortgages decline because you don't have money. Um, and this is kind of the, the problem, because it's actually very difficult to pull apart why was that person declined a mortgage until you really dig into it. And digging into it is dirty and time-consuming. Um, the other point which I just wanted to pick up, and Josie, your point around data, I think is really interesting because, you know, we live in a society where we are increasingly as individuals, I think, being reduced to our data. So how do I fit you as an individual, how do I fit myself as an individual into an Excel sheet? What columns do I define myself up? What are the fields? Um, and in a weird way, I think, you know, the increased... Um, urge to define people into, uh, for, for commercial reasons, and I say this as an ex-quantum strategy researcher who's to define people for a living, so, you know, as a former wolf myself, um, 
you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to pick up nuances there. And I think a lot of the discussions around, you know, whether it's sexual, um, you know, definitions or, or gender definitions or whatever it is, is a little bit of a kickback around saying, I don't want someone else defining who I am. I want to have a choice in defining myself. And sometimes those definitions might not fit your tick boxes. Um, so yes, I, I do agree that we are kind of moving to more of a defined kind of state and trying to increasingly define, but I don't think that's as simple as people just wanting to do it because they want to define themselves more. I think that's slightly a reaction to being defined in a way that they don't feel is appropriate to them as well. Okay, thanks. Okay, so I'm going to start with you, yeah? We do live in a very unequal society, and I certainly wouldn't want to do into that. Um, but one of the things, Jordan, that you were saying about Scarman and McPherson and the educational white male consultants worried me, which is, I would disagree with them that they're the best people to represent IPs because of their ideas, but saying it's their white maleness that's the problem is worrying because it kind of makes me think that can a white male ever represent a black person or can vice versa? That just is very worrying. Um, and then as a teacher, I've heard some echoes of this in the decolonizing uh, the curriculum where I've seen people saying, if I go to, I think so as is quite famous at the moment, if I was going to study X country, I really need to have somebody from that country being the lecturer. And I'm a Chinese friend, I'm sorry, interested in Chinese. And I wouldn't care what colour my lecturer was if they had the best ideas. So that's what worries me about this. So do you think it's more important that there's a diversity in a company than instead of having more qualified people? So say when you have three white men who are extremely qualified for a job, but you have a black woman who is less qualified in the job. What is obviously more important, the more qualified job or more qualified uh, candidate, or just because she is a person of colour and she's female, for that reason you uh, accept her. I mean, you wouldn't accept a Nazi because, you know, they're different, but you would accept a woman because she's different. So I just don't know what, what separates that, yeah? I think that we're coming from the wrong place. I think that if we all try or make an effort or get educated actually to understand each other, might that take her further on the level that the lady said we've got terrible childcare, we've actually also got terrible consideration for our fellow man, so looking up, it wouldn't matter whether I'm black, white, green or whatever, I would still understand somebody who just had their calcops built over them sort of thing. And I think that it also leads, because we don't consider each other, it, it, can, it leads to really bad mental health problems as well as undiversity. So I just think that would be something to concentrate uh, Yeah, I just wanted to ask a question which relates to an example that Drayla gave, not because I want to pick on you, but because I think it, it is a general kind of point I hear made many times by different people, which is your example, you said you were dressed very smartly for the important function, and I think someone assumed you were a cleaner. Uh, and you were upset by that, and I completely understand you being upset. Uh, but I think it is important to think about those kinds of examples a, a bit more, not necessarily in that particular instance, because, uh, I mean, the like, you didn't accuse the person who, who asked that question of being racist, but uh, I think it is, you have to think about, well, the sociological reality is that a high proportion of cleaners are still black women. If you go around London, that's certainly the case. I'm not saying that's a, that's a good thing at all, but uh, it's not just it's not a question of uh, individual hostility. And also, I think historically, things have changed enormously. It seems to me anyway, and I don't know other people on the panel think as well, that attitudes to black people and to ethnic minorities, minorities generally in Britain have become a lot more relaxed 
and enlightened uh, over the years. So there are still structural inequalities. There are instances of uh, the, the can cause really retention, like that job, uh, like that uh, come to the function example. But it seems to me things have still changed enormously. We shouldn't have played that at all. Hi, my question is, when it comes to issues of social justice and equality, how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you've won? Like, if you look at the civil rights movement in the US in the 60s, for example, you know, before the civil rights movement, black people in the US couldn't vote, and now they can. That's a clear victory. Uh, but when it comes to issues like representation within companies, it seems to me that, that it's really hard to say I mean, representation in companies is just one part of the wider issue of racial equality and gender equality, but how do you know when you've reached the point where, you know, we, we, we've solved these issues? Are, are we really going to aim for, you know, every company and every organization has to have, you know, makeup employees or whatever that totally matches the percentages in the population? Or that, that was what James Damore, or however you pronounce his name, challenged in his Google memo, and well, we can see that the first that kicked off, so that's clearly a pretty controversial point. And I've what other criteria are there? So I suppose uh, my kind of question is yeah. is around the involvement of the individual with the state, which is one thing that kind of interests me, is why people, uh, everyone has their own diversity, everyone has their own background, but then why then is the state the natural, the natural kind of protagonist of the, the kind of, why, why are we kind of outsourcing our agency and our responsibility to the state in response to our kind of concerns about our own diversity? And it just seems when you look at the narrative around, like, particularly the women's movement at the moment, it's like, I'm a victim, I'm vulnerable, what are you as a state going to do about it? And I think that kind of why is that developed and whether or not this is an issue? Cathy, I mean, one thing I wanted to talk, I mean, obviously, this, the, the, these questions, as I said, are quite, being debated quite a lot in America, but. I've often thought about that thing about saying you can't speak on behalf of, right. but 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 you also become, but we also do start to become quite fragmented then because you do feel that you can't speak at all, and uh, the kind of right. awkwardness sets in. I mean that's what 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 I what I was asking because I somebody made the point which is, if we were to go through the 400 speakers from this festival to work on, out on the diversity, you know people don't say to me well how many autistic people have you got. Or how many uh, second-generation Irish? Nobody's ever asked right. me how many Jews I've had. I mean, it's a particular right. agenda, if you see what I mean. But you just know that it's not. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting anyone suggests that I do this, by the way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but also, I don't really want to see people in that way. I mean, I do genuinely want to, in good faith. I, I got your, your point. I mean, you know, if there was 400 speakers, they were all blue-haired and blonde and why we might all be concerned. Um, but, uh, but on the other hand, it's just, it's just that tyranny of feeling that you can't speak or you're nervous. Anyway, I just wondered if you could reflect on that. Right, no, I think that's very, very true. And of course, one of the things that comes into play when we talk about demographic diversity is, you know, do you speak for, uh, for your group? I mean, do, do, you, do we see people as speaking for their group? Do we sort of expect uniformity within the group? I saw a really interesting survey the other day about uh, microaggressions, which is these you know, comments that are presumed to sort of subtly demean people on the basis of you know, race, 
gender, uh, you know, immigrant status, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing that I found really interesting, when they actually did a survey of you know, people within various demographic groups and asked them, you know, given them examples of what is considered to be a microaggression, you know, like you know, asking someone, you know, where are you from? You know, asking an immigrant, where are you from? It turns out that the majority of immigrants actually do not consider this to be offensive. And I don't remember the exact statements, but a lot of things that were considered to be sort of racial microaggressions actually were not considered to be offensive by like, you know, 75% of African Americans. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't remember again the exact statements uh, the, that were used in that poll. But I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, do you, you know, who within the group determines, you know, what the sort of accepted viewpoint of that group is. And I think this is where you get into these, you know, really ugly things of people being accused of, you know, being a sort of traitor to their gender, to their race, uh, because they have the wrong viewpoint. And, you know, I think that can get uh, really oppressive in a way uh, when you're not treated as an individual, but, you know, as a representative of your group. And I think someone also raised a really good question here of, you know, what is the end point of diversity? How do we know when we've won? Are we, and especially with this increasing fragmentation, are we going to have more and more groups kind of coming to the fore, you know, claiming that they also need to be included in, in the sort of diversity landscape? I mean, are we going to have, for instance, people with different family arrangements, like, you know, polyamorous people, you know, claiming that, you know, they need to be included as well, and, you know, they also need proportional representation. Uh, so I think there, that is, I think, the, the thing that some people find kind of scary about the social justice movement, that there is no endpoint. We're going to keep kind of coming up with new and new forms of, you know, what is discovered to be oppression and, you know, demands for new and new remedies to, uh, you know, to, to these perceived uh, discriminations. I mean, is it a problem when 28% of the management at a tech company is female? I mean, do we, uh, I mean, I would say maybe, okay, if, if there's like zero female managers or like 2% of managers are female, yeah, I can sort of see that you can make an argument that yes, you're probably under including women and not really giving female candidates a fair shot. But, you know, considering that there are professions in which women are quite overrepresented, like psychologists, for instance, you know, are we going to say that we're not going to, you know, to, to uh, consider anything short of a 50-50 allocation in the tech sector to be, you know, evidence of a lack of diversity? So I think that is a really good question. You know, yeah. what, what is the end point? What uh, is the victory? <laughs> and Molly, maybe just kind of pulling that, that question along a bit to just ask you, I mean, because one of, one of the things is, for example, there's, there's far more female um, primary school teachers. You know, should there be a campaign to get them out? Or do you see what I mean? Or kind of replaced by... But, it, but in terms of university entrance, based on the David Lammy report on universities, in fact, there's a, a, a very high pr proportion of Chinese students and Indian subcontinent, and maybe there should be attempts to call them out for privilege and stop them going to university, or kind of, you know what I mean? Whereas we don't think like that, do we? But I mean, how do you decide? That's what my nervousness about proportions, just in terms of the kind of gender and tech thing. But I mean, just mulling that over, anything. 
I mean, if we, if we think about teaching, I think that's a great example, actually. Teaching or nursing, uh, you know, industries which traditionally have more uh, female representation. Um, we do need men in those careers. We need more men in those careers. Um, but when I have conversations with, let's say, the young men that I meet about, you know, would you consider going into teaching? Would you go into nursing? The questions are all, always long hours, underpaid. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a profession where... Um, you know, I, I, if I tell my, my friends, then, you know, they'll kind of look at me a little bit funny. Um, these aren't seen as being desirable careers for men to go into traditionally. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that's right. I would like that to change. I would like to see uh, professions which are associated with, you know, more, uh, you know, more women representation um, to be seen in, in more favorable lights for men as well. And I do think those points around sort of home care, house care, who looks after the kids, um, those need to be discussed as well. Who does the housework? Who does the washing? Who does the laundry? You know, if someone's going to create space for someone to move up in their careers, then who's going to pick up the slack? You know, those kind of things need to be discussed. Um, the the points around sort of microaggressions I thought was, was interesting as well. Um, talking to myself, I, I don't get annoyed if someone asks me where I'm from. I have a, a sort of a weird answer, which is, I guess, you know, my family's from Sri Lanka. I've grown up in the UK most of my lives. But to a certain extent, that's because of my personal context. I'm, I, I don't feel ashamed of saying that because I don't think that when I say that, that someone will hold that against me, right? Whereas if I was saying that I was coming from a certain background or a certain country where, let's say, there were very negative stereotypes or expectations, then I might feel a bit more kind of upset about being asked that question. It's like, well, what do you mean about that? You know, are you going to talk to me differently? Are you going to treat me differently? I don't, I don't think that because that's not my personal experience. Um, and then I guess just talking about things like um, the, the where does it stop, I, I don't think it ever does stop. Um, and, and talking to that point around, you know, if we go back 100 years ago, you know, the, the stop point would be for women, if we were talking about women, it would be, ah, oh, when, when women get the vote, then that's the end of it, you know, and, and that's not the end of it. There's always something which comes on. That The reason the, the, the goalposts keep changing is because society keeps changing. Um, whether or not we respond to that in a way that we keep kind of, you know, divvying things up to smaller and smaller targets, I don't know. I think some of those things get kicked back. Some of the more important things get taken forward. Um, but as far as things changing, I don't think change doesn't change. We started the very first week talking about fairness, and I hope that we can all agree, and perhaps we can't, I don't know, that um, prejudice and racism and sexism is unfair because it falsely takes into account the, or falsely asserts the relevance of sex and race. In other words, you can't have this job because you're a woman, you can't have this job because you're black. And the correct remedy to that, if it not, is to recognize the true irrelevance of these characteristics. But it's not a lot of the passion for diversity in the way it is currently framed. Precisely the same false assertion of relevance that constitutes the bigotry that it purports to try to counteract in the first place. And is it not, notwithstanding the fact that bigotry is nonetheless still a problem, as, as some of our speakers suggested, but is it not, uh, not only failing to solve, but actually contributing to the problem? of making people more aware of and making people think more about the asserted relevance of what are truly, utterly irrelevant characteristics. Okay. Yeah, we've um, spoken a lot about the fact that historically and today, gender prejudice and ethnic prejudice, and I think probably most of the room would agree, it's messed up. There's a thing we haven't tackled, really, although um, Amani hinted at it with the kind of thing of what if you can't tick the box 
And something that's emerged a lot in the last sort of five years has been uh, gender fluidity. And equally ethnically, I think if you were to pluck someone off the streets of London, they could well say, well, my dad's Jamaican, my mum's Polish, I also sort of feel a bit British. So, effectively, my question is for all of you, and I think you've all made such lovely points, and it's nice to have this kind of level of intellect in a stupid world. Um, my question for all of you is, how do we deal with the other box? Hi, um, I, I was really interested in what you said about real experiences because um, the only time I've ever felt uh, that someone was prejudiced against me, um, and most both times it was to do with work, um, was um, losing a job because I was working class um, and I was in a very middle class environment, um, and um, they, you could just see totally that it was because of my class that I lost that job, and. Um, Applying for a job as a teacher, actually, uh, having done a degree um, when I was a lot older, and really worrying I wasn't going to get the job because of my age. But I've never ever felt um, that I've not got on because I'm a woman. I've never felt a barrier um, uh, uh, to do with that. And so um, it struck me that actually it's about the experience as opposed to the identity. Um, and that's my experience. So the, the, the the person reacts to you for a particular reason, and we don't always know what that reason is. We can assume it's because I'm black or it's because I'm a woman, um, but we can't be sure that that's the reason um, unless you kind of delve into it and find out. Um, but something that is happening today is that, and um, we talked about it in the last session that I just did on the theatre, is that um, white males are actually finding that uh, they're finding it a bit more difficult to get on, particularly in the theatre. I mean, a lot of jobs that are coming up in the theatre now are encouraging uh, people from different diverse, uh, different ethnic backgrounds uh, or disabled. Um, and um, I, a friend of mine even said to me, you know, I feel like I'm, I haven't got a chance for this job because I'm a white male. Um, and so it's that, and one of the speakers said, well, that's good because now white males are now feeling as uncomfortable as everyone else did. But is that good? Is that the way forward? One of the most thrilling things about seeing Rodrida on Question Time in the run-up to the Brexit vote was that you absolutely defied expectations. Not because you're a black woman, I don't think, but because of the, the prevailing way in which that Brexit uh, discussion had, had taken place up until that point. And it was so refreshing to have somebody who wasn't following the simplistic line uh, and was representing in some ways a kind of class position, which was very refreshing. Uh, Drida supported uh, Brexit uh, in a way that shocked a lot of people, I suspect. Um, and so there's something about defying expectations that's incredibly thrilling, but that relies on people having expectations in the first place that some would call prejudices. Now, what's the basis of our expectations? Is it the basis of kind of racial thinking or sort of sexist thinking, or is it based on the kind of reality that we've already lived through? So if I'm surprised to see you coming to an institution, um, and I assume that you're a cleaner. You could say that that's just because I think all black women ought to be cleaners, or you could say that's because I've only ever experienced black women in my institution as cleaners. So I can really understand why that's incredibly insulting and, and, uh, and you shouldn't be expected in a way to be at the vanguard of continuing to find people's expectations. But I do think that if, if there is a reality to racial um, structural inequality, that is just going to be the case, and there are going to be, have to be people who are the first people through the door. 
Um, so that's, I think, in some ways, encouraging young people to embrace the thrill of that rather than to come in bed the underprivileged in themselves is really, really important. Do you need to necessarily share the same identity, say race or gender, as a group to be able to empathise with them or make policy that will benefit them? Because I think that's what's been implied by some speakers. Right. You know, I think one of the things that has kind of come out from the first lot of questions and the second lot of questions and talking about going into a school. Now, this, this school, for example, would be used to black women going in, seeing them as parents with a variety of jobs, going to the local authority, seeing trainers who are black and, and, and women. And actually, I, my first job when I was 18 and I was um, at university and getting some extra money was a chambermaid. I didn't go to my chambermaid job dressed up in a suit. And so we have to keep asking ourselves, if somebody looks at someone, they instantly make a decision about that person. And what makes them make that decision? Because they're looking at someone, a skin black, female, what could they be doing in my school? Oh, they're working in the kitchen. There's no sense that they could be a consultant. And you know, when I talk to people in the community, in the black communities, because there's no black community, there are black communities, um, they said to me they're tired of keep telling these stories to people and people keep saying to them, oh, well it might have been this, it might have been that. <clears throat> when are we going to get to the stage where we actually just stop and listen to people from different communities and actually trust what they're saying and saying this is how it makes me feel. And it's interesting that we have this debate about um, diversity because I actually think the debate should be about access. Who gets access to what? And why do people get access to what? And then you start building in these power narratives. So when we've been talking about primary schools, and we've got lots of primary school teachers, yeah, but at the senior management level, how many head teachers are women? How many directors of education are women? And it's those people who actually make the policies, who set the standards. It's their voices that are on the platform. And that's what I think we have to interject into this, is a sense of access and power. Who gets to say, and therefore who then just has to do what they say. And lots of people in different communities, and I talk passionately about my community as a black woman, they say they just don't feel powerful in Britain. And actually, when they tell their stories, people are saying to them, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? No, I haven't, because I know what's happening to me. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah and I think the only justified discrimination in terms of a job interview or university interview, in terms of thinking whether to take this person, is to do with the judgment of their potential. So I think Oxford has long thought recognise that when a working class student comes or a, a student's experience is advantage, they've long made an assessment of what is this person's potential, given that they haven't come from Eton. And so they judge, they made that judgment, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable and, and right judgment to make, very much from the benefit of the, unit, of the institution to do that. But I mean, essentially that, that is recognising someone's background and it's to do with what they can become rather than, than what they've, where they've come from. I think that, you know, to do it simply on the basis of ethnicity, it's quite a lot of private school, um, it's quite quite school educated Sikhs, for example, and you know, you, should they get diversity tick boxes and you find out they're actually from Eton. You know, I think that really it, it should be about recognising somebody the disadvantage someone's experienced in their life and making judgment about what could they become given this disadvantage. Also from the point of view of women, you just spent 15 years looking after kids, what could you become now? Um, you're in a worse position than the man. So I think that's, that's a perfectly reasonable judgment to make. I mean, other than that, it, it's not reasonable, it shouldn't happen. I think you, it, we need to, in terms of the end game, we need to get to the point 
of dealing with people only as individuals. I think that the idea of colorblindness should be the ideal. You know, it should be the idea where I think these things do not matter. That should be where we're heading. And I think that there is a kind of retrenchment where we reproduce um, divisions. I think US campuses, you have all these essentially quite privileged um, uh, people, and, and they're behaving like they're in tribes. And there's no reason for them to be in tribes. And they've all been well-educated, they're at this prestigious university, they have all these books to read and all these ideas to discuss, and they're not making the most of it because they're essentially entrenched and having these sort of rather futile um, kind of uh, exchanges across trenches. And I think that, you know, I think that we kind of need to be a bit more hippie about it, a bit more enlightened about it. Just like, at the end of the day, what do we want? We want people to be arguing and thinking about the argument and not about the person. Um, but that, that's the kind of the end and not... And not um, you know, institutionalising it through bureaucracy almost takes it, takes it much, much further away from that. Hi, um, I, have a data, uh, I have a background in data science and uh, I was really interested to hear what you said, uh, Josie. Oh, I was really interested to hear what you said, Josie, basically that you didn't like taking surveys because it puts you into boxes and you don't feel that you can take your uh, opinion forward. And uh, also, Drake, um, I believe that you said that you were really unhappy with the disconnect uh, between what you think and what these people making decisions on your behalf are thinking. Um, to me, that says that the sur like surveys are a great way to get information from the people. And it seems like uh, when you were asked, it was really badly thought. Uh, I, I think we're going to study. Yeah, no, it's all right. Carry on. Okay. Um, so, if you were given well-formed surveys, um, you know, then the higher-ups can get a better understanding of what you are thinking. And with new technology, you might have a, a site like Reddit where people can put on their ideas and the leaders or the people making decisions can get um, a much better idea of what people on the ground are thinking. I think generally, uh, in terms of diversity of ideas, there's an information problem. So getting the information higher up the chain um, would be a solution in my eyes. I was just surprised to hear that you were kind of against surveys and I think they're probably the way forward in my point of view. Okay, thank you. I just had to bring up the point that I believe that um, a lot of people choose to be quite ignorant about a lot of stuff and I'm not saying that because I'm black or female. I'm just saying it looking at it from different perspectives. I personally believe that because in, especially in this country, we don't have a lot of, um, we don't have loads of media coverage of loads of stuff happening to loads of ethnic, bearing in mind it's not just black people, there's also Asian people and we haven't really touched upon that. We have, we have loads of stuff that happens in society, blah, 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 that is not really portrayed like negatively so you think to yourself, oh yeah, you guys used to be slaves and now you guys have jobs and you're working, blah, blah, blah. It's amazing why are you guys complaining. But I personally believe that, um, definitely I can say as a black person, I believe that we, I think it's wrong that some people believe as ethnic minorities it's okay to play the race card anytime any single little thing happens. I personally believe that's wrong. But um, like bringing on the point of diversity and bringing on the point of everything, I personally believe that people, someone brought up a point that some people might exaggerate and I believe that's wrong. Well, you wouldn't exaggerate if the point, if people had listened to your ideas in the first place. If you think about it in that aspect, I believe that if people decided to listen to what everyone was saying, and by diversity in all different senses, not just race, like gender and everything, then there wouldn't be a problem. The fact that the problem is still there today obviously means that the voices still need to be heard, which is the result of people having all of these different views. I personally believe that if everyone just took the time to listen to all these people talking and listening to everything that they've been saying, then we wouldn't be even having this debate because diversity would obviously be clear. Yeah, but I have to say back to you as well that when people have a voice, then you also have to say there's not just one voice, then you have to be able to argue back. It's not, you can't listen, you can't demand that people listen. 
and that's it. Then it's an argument, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's not. I wasn't trying to say that immediately someone would say something that everyone should listen. I'm saying everyone has a voice, but I personally believe that it's to do with, especially like um, someone brought up about diversity in class. It depends on where you are in society, that's, that's when people will listen to you. And I personally believe that that sort of thing is what needs to be sorted out. So diversity could be something that's clear and not something that's just, yeah. Okay, thanks. All right, so I'm going to start in the reverse order. So, Kathy. Yeah, I just wanted to really quickly comment on what Amali said about uh, how change never really stops because obviously as society moves ahead, you know, we discover new areas where, you know, change is needed. Uh, I think that's very true, but I think we should also be wary of assuming that, you know, change is always linear. You know, change could happen in a reverse direction. What happens if we have more people who have you know, perhaps as a result of religious diversity, who have traditional views of gender. I mean, that's entirely possible. Uh, take something like gender fluidity. You know, that is something that's regarded as progressive by a lot of people. That's sort of the standard assumption. There are many feminists who think that uh, there, that it has a downside. That, for instance, you know, a lot of the, these notions of you know non-binary genders actually replicate gender stereotypes. That you know, if you're you're not really a woman, but you know something other than a woman, if you have certain you know characteristics that are traditionally considered masculine. So there's a lot of debate about many of these things, and I think if we're talking about diversity. You know, we really should assume that that diversity will include you know, some opinions that, you know, contradict other, you know, progressive viewpoints. So I think, you know, that that's really what I would question about. That you know, first of all, it's not linear, and also, real, real quick. Uh, yeah, I think it's very true that you know, change never stops. But if if the dialogue about change is sort of assuming that the society is full of you know, oppression and prejudice, I think it really is problematic for people to feel that they can always be accused of you know, some new form of bigotry. And, and I think we, to promote this sort of ongoing change, I think we have to approach it in, in a less polarizing and less confrontational way. Okay, thank you, Kathy. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Drida, sure. um, I've... I've Gone on. Yeah. I think if we're going to be talking about diversity very much in our own British context, we have to start talking about class. And I think we've honestly got to start asking ourselves, why are we not talking about class? What is it that we're worried about when we're, so we're just avoiding this? And I think it actually means we have to start thinking about the power structures. And by thinking about that, we then have to start thinking about who gets access to what? How does it happen? So, for example, we have to start thinking about issues like our schooling system. The reason a lots of people want their kids to go to private schools, although not all private schools are amazing, is because they want their kids to have the right networks that set them up when they're adults. That's what they actually want. When we start challenging those kind of beliefs, then I think we can open the door to um, many different people. And the... The last thing I want to say is, I mean, one of the things I've picked up from, from today, because often I'll go back and I speak to, to my family, lots of women, got lots of family in um, Sheffield as well, and they say, yeah, what did you talk about? One of the things I want to be able to say to them is, when I've talked about some of my experiences, which I know mirror some of the experiences of people in my own family, 
mirror the experiences of white working class people who I know, who I've grown up with, is that people were listening. People were listening. People were listening to those experiences. We have to start listening to the people on the ground who this actually happens to. And it's those voices, we cannot keep saying, those voices are not allowed to be the people who are not making the decisions as well. No one's saying that you can't have white middle-class men making a decision, but you know what? When you have an institution or you've got a policy that is dominated by white middle-class men making decisions about other groups, there is something profoundly wrong. So we've got a lot of things to think about, I think, and I think we have to be truthful. Why are we not thinking about class? Why do we keep pushing it aside? Okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm not against surveys. I'm against council asking me who I sleep with, which I don't think is any of their business. Um, I think people can empathise, and I think that that is very much being lost. I think that the idea that there is a kind of commensurability of human experience, um, that you can be an expert in Chinese um, as a white British person, or I think that that, you know, very much with this retrenchment, this sort of idea that you cannot exchange information or appreciate other cultures, and I think that that is the loss of diversity in the sense that you are um, reducing the richness of the world and the richness of human, human exchanges by putting up these sort of these borders. Um, you know, men can't comment on abortion, Spaniards can't co comment on Catalonia. You know, political questions are being reduced to certain categories of people who are the only legitimate voices on them. And actually, you know, a real political debate is, is, is involving as many of those voices as possible. I mean, I think that really the, the, the end game should be the state of freedom and not of restriction. I think we need to re remove impediments, remove discrimination. And those things are serious social questions involving serious resources. Um, but I think that, that one of the main restrictions now is actually the, the bureaucratization. So it's not actually discrimination or, or, or educational limits, but the, the bureaucratization that's creeping into our everyday relations. I think the point in the front was very important about we're essentially outsourcing um, our identities to the state or to state-like forms, even if we make them ourselves. You're outsourcing the question of who you are and how you relate to a bureaucratic form, to a box. And I think that really need to bring it back, to take back control and, and return things to a, to a human um, individual kind of point of view, which is to do with what we do, who we are in the world, um, to humanize our relationships and to humanize our, our relationship to ourselves, and, and so to take back from bureaucracy just as much from discrimination and, and social economic impediments. Okay, thanks. So just a few points to wrap up. First is that, I guess to remind myself, remind all of us that our own experiences aren't others' experiences. So as a person who comes from an Asian background, as a woman, as someone who's a chief exec, um, and who hasn't had my career held back by, you know, overt discrimination. That doesn't mean that others have the same experiences. Um, on the point around, I guess, empathy of others, so can someone who is, let's say, you know, can, can I, as, a, as an Asian woman, uh, you know, sympathize with middle-aged white men or six-year-old black boys? Yeah, of course I can. But it doesn't just happen just because I'm in a position of power or because I've been given the authority. It happens because you have to look into it. You become an expert in something if you dig into it, if you explore it, if you try and understand those situations. So expertise, if it's coming from a situation which you don't personally experience, has to be worked at. And I think that's probably more the challenge. It's not that people are saying that um, you know, if you're a white man, you can't make decisions on behalf of you know, ethnic women, but it's just what are, what are your credentials to do so? Do you have the information? Do you have the background to be able to do that? Um, and the, just the last point, which is around that, um, the idea of false assertions, and I think this goes to the employee point as well. 
which is I think we need to pull apart our assertions here and what we're actually calling false. Um, the false, if, if, if I think about sort of the assumptions around women in, in tech, a false assertion would be that women um, are less able to be engineers, right? The not false assertion is that um, some men feel that women cannot be engineers. And if I'm addressing those assertions, that's not feeding into the falseness of the original assertion, and that's not trying to support the idea that um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to define you know, an industry by gender. Uh, what I'm trying to address is the challenges which lead to those assertions being formed in the first place, um, because I feel that there is a better outcome for both the businesses as well as for the economies and um, society off addressing those things as well. We only kind of just scrape the surface because that's the nature of the, the game. But at least um, I can say, that when, when really you were saying, what will you say? What I'd say is that I go to a lot of debates on diversity that's full of jargon, full of platitudes, and where nobody dares to say anything a little bit kind of risque. Um, but you were all frank and honest, and we haven't resolved the problem, but I hope that we'll carry on discussing it with the spirit of inquiry that was uh, encouraged by all of our panellists in their different ways.